I want you to think back over the last 11 chapters in our study through the book of Mark. And I want you to think about all of the amazing and incredible, wonderful things that we've seen Jesus do over the life and his ministry. We've seen him preach, teach, heal. We've seen him perform miracles, cast out demons, walk on water, feed 5,000. We've seen Jesus do some incredible and amazing things. So let me just go ahead and recap for those of you who are new. In Mark chapter one, the very first miracle that Jesus performs, he casts out a demon in church. How many of you know there's still probably some people sitting in church that needs a demon cast out of them, amen? That's what Jesus does. So Jesus casts out a demon. And then immediately after that, he goes up to 11 fishermen and he says, follow me. And they listen to him. Some of you ladies, you're like, how do I get my man to listen to me? How did Jesus do that? That's a miracle. That's what it is. That's how they obeyed him. And then he goes into a city and he heals every single person in that city. Right now, when you turn on the news and you watch the presidential debates, what's one of the big things they're arguing about, right? Healthcare. Okay. You don't need healthcare, you get Jesus, he heals everybody, and there is no deductible or copay. That is the Lord Jesus. Here's a couple more stories that we see in Mark. In Mark 2, he heals a paralytic, a man with a withered hand, and he heals a leper simply by touching them. Mark 3, Jesus preaches probably one of the most famous parables, the sower and the four soils. And immediately after a long day of preaching, Jesus gets in a boat, goes out in the middle of the sea, and takes a nap in a hurricane. How many of you from Southeast Texas, you know that's a superpower. Jesus took a nap in the middle of a hurricane. After that, Jesus goes on, he opens the side of the blind, he opens the ears of the deaf, he even walks on water. In one chapter, he feeds 5,000 people with a little boy's lunchable, fish sandwiches for everybody. That's what Jesus does. And then one chapter later, he does it all over again, just so he knows that you can still have miracles when Jesus works in your life. And then we just see more stories. In Mark chapter 10, he predicts his own death three times. Mark chapter 7, he gets in fights with the Pharisees. And then Mark chapter 11, Jesus, he steals a donkey and he kills a tree. Okay, we've seen Jesus do some really incredible things. In fact, over the course of the gospel of Mark, we have looked at 14 unique and individual miracles that Jesus performed in his ministry. Over the course of the four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Jesus performs 42 miracles. And then John, in his gospel, in John 21, he actually writes this. He says that, and there are also many other things which Jesus did, that which, if they should be written in a book, everyone, I suppose, that even the world itself would not be able to contain the books that should be written. What John is saying is that Jesus did some incredible things. He did so many wonderful things that if you were to take a pen and you were trying to write them all down, there wouldn't be enough libraries in the world to contain all of the books of all of the miracles and all of the wonders that Jesus performed over the course of his life. Jesus does some amazing things. But you know what I find is so fascinating is that Jesus never taught his disciples how to do any of those things. Jesus never taught his disciples, say, how to preach a sermon. He doesn't say, you need an introduction, you need three points, a big idea, and tell a story at the end to make sure you make them cry. That's how you preach a good sermon. He doesn't do that. He never teaches how to walk on water. He doesn't hold a calm the storm workshop. He doesn't do that. Right? Jesus never even teaches his disciples how to cast out a demon. How many of you, that would make Thanksgiving a lot easier if you could, okay. 
Yeah, you're going to hang out with the in-laws. That would be a really good superpower for you to have. And he doesn't teach us how to bless and break and multiply food to feed the multitudes. That would make my grocery bill at least cut in half, amen? Jesus doesn't teach his disciples how to do any of that. And what's fascinating to me is that Jesus, the greatest teacher, the best rabbi, the most influential person who's ever walked the face of this planet, who more lives have been changed by him, more books been written about him, more songs sung to him, more churches planted who are worshiping him, four billion people on the planet who serve him. This is our Jesus and the greatest man who has ever lived in the history of the world. He never taught his disciples how to do 99% of the things that he did in his life. You wonder why, why is that the way it is? Is it because they're not important? No, they're very important. Is it because we wouldn't need it? No, he knows that we're going to need these things. Is it because he didn't want us to do those things? No, he wants us to do those things. And so you wonder, how come Jesus didn't teach us how to do 99% of the things that he did? It's because Jesus taught us to do something better. Jesus taught us how to do something more significant more important, and if you and me were to grasp the magnitude of what Jesus is going to tell us today, then it would change everything in our lives. Do you know what the only thing that Jesus ever taught his disciples how to do was? How to pray. Because when you learn the importance of prayer, all of those things are possible because it's prayer that is the key to unlocking God's power in your life. If you're taking notes with me, that's the first note I want you to write down. It is prayer that is the key to unlocking God's power in your life. When you learn how to pray, all of those things are possible. You don't need to know how to preach a sermon. If you know how to pray, then you're going to be able to preach a sermon. You don't need to know how to plant a church because if you pray, then you're going to know how to plant a church. You don't need to know how to cast out a demon or perform a miracle or to bring sight to the blind or healing to the sick. If you know how to pray, then all of those things will be possible for you because prayer Prayer is the key to unlocking God's power in your life. It happens when we learn how to pray. The number one thing that Jesus teaches his disciples more than anything else is the importance and the power that comes through prayer. It's one of Jesus' favorite subjects. So let me just give you some verses to help you understand the importance of prayer. In Matthew 6, 6, Jesus says, when you pray, go into your room and shut the door, pray to your father who is in secret and your father who is in secret, he will reward you because prayer is the key to unlocking God's power in your life. The next verse we see is in Luke eleven twelve. 12. Jesus says, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. What is that? That is bringing the power of God in your life through your prayers. Luke twenty two forty. he said to them, pray that you may not enter into temptation. Do you need overcome sins and overcome besetting sins and break free of patterns and repentance in your life? Then that comes when you learn to pray because prayer is the key to unlocking God's power in your life. Matthew 7, 7-Eleven, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and knock and it will be opened up to you because prayer is the key to unlocking God's power in your life. Luke 10 2, the harvest is plentiful. Your next door neighbors, your co-workers, your boss, your friends, your family, your husband, your wife, your children, your grandparents, the person who lives across the street or at CVS or at the gym, the harvest is plentiful. Guys, we are not running out of people to reach or souls to save. The harvest is plentiful, but what does he say next? The workers are few. How do you reach them? What do you do? You pray. 
earnestly to the Lord of the harvest because prayer unlocks the power of God in your life. Luke 11, it says, and he told him a parable to the effect that they ought to always pray and not lose heart because prayer is the key to unlocking God's power in your life. John 15, seven, if you abide in me and my word abides in you, ask whatever you may wish, pray, and it will be done for you. And in Mark 9, 29, probably the closest that we ever get to Jesus teaching his disciples, anything somewhat ministry related is when they come to him because they tried to cast a demon out of an epileptic boy and they failed. They couldn't succeed. They, pray, they, they, they tried to cast the demon out, but it didn't work. And they come up to Jesus and say, Jesus, how come we weren't successful? Why did it work? And what does Jesus say to them in Mark 9, 29? He says, this kind can only come out by prayer. Because prayer is the key to unlocking God's power in your life. If you want to see miracles, then you need to pray. If you want to see the supernatural, you need to pray. If you want to see breakthrough, you need to pray. If you want to see deliverance, you need to pray. If you want to see provision, then you need to pray. Because prayer is the key to unlocking God's power in your life. How many of you want to see God's power in your life? You want to see God move in extraordinary, wonderful, incredible ways. Well, then that happens when we learn to pray. And so what I want to do today is I want, to, I want to teach you what Jesus teaches us about prayer. So if you're taking notes, the sermon title is in Mark 11, 22 through 26. It's called, Jesus Teaches Us How to Pray. And Jesus is going to show us the power of God that comes when we learn to pray. We're going to read it all up front, and then I want to give you three keys to an effective prayer life. Here's what Mark tells us as Jesus comes into Jerusalem. And Jesus answered to them, have faith in God. Now, I'm going to pause right there. And I want to set up the story because last week what we saw is that Jesus goes into the temple. It's during the Passover season. It's at the end of his life. On Mark 11 is Palm Sunday, which most scholars and commentators actually believe happened on a Monday. Jesus rides in on a donkey, revealing himself as the Messiah. And then he goes back to his friend's house in Bethany. The next day he wakes up, he goes into the temple. He wants something to eat. So he goes up to a tree. There's no fruit on the tree. So he kills the tree, says, boom, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. Die, the tree dies. And then he goes in the temple. He goes full on Indiana Jones with a whip, flipping tables, driving out the money changers. And then on the way back, Peter sees the tree that Jesus killed. And he says, look, Rabbi, the tree that you cursed, it has withered away at its roots. And then what they're wanting to know is this. How did you do this? What authority did you have? How did you speak to a tree and it actually die? How did you do these things? Where did that power come from? And this is why Jesus says, have faith in God. He's teaching them the power of prayer. And he says, have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. Verse 25, and whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone else so that your father also who is in heaven may forgive you of your trespasses. And then some of your translations will ask Add this in verse 26. If you do not forgive, neither will your father who is in heaven forgive you of your trespasses. Here, Jesus gets a moment alone with his disciples, and he's going to teach them the most important thing that they need to know, how to pray. 
Now, this story is taking place most likely on a Wednesday morning. On Friday, Jesus is going to be crucified. He's only got two days left with his disciples. And he has a moment that he's going to prepare them for what's going to be happening after this. In the last moment that he gets to spend with his disciples before his death, he teaches them over the importance of prayer. One thing I need you to understand is this, is that Jesus is a teacher, Right, Jesus, yes, he performs miracles. Yes, he does signs and wonders. Yes, he heals the sick and gives sight to the blind. All of those things. Yes, he does those things. But first and foremost, Jesus is a preacher and a teacher. And just like any good teacher, Jesus has certain subjects that he tends to teach over more than others. There's certain topics that are more important to Jesus than others. Now, that's not to say that not everything that Jesus taught is important because obviously he is the Lord and everything he says is incredibly important. But there are some things that are more important and on the heart of Jesus, and he teaches over them more than anything else. This is the way that good teachers teach. In fact, this is the way that I teach. Not saying I'm a good teacher, but I do try to be like Jesus when I teach. There's certain themes and elements and subjects that if you hang out at Redemption long enough, you're probably going to hear me say them over and over and over again. I mean, I can only tell you so many stories about Esther, right? I mean, I can only tell you that I run in the morning so many times. Like there's so many different illustrations and stories and I'm not clever enough to come up with a new one each week. So I just recycle old material. This is what good teachers do. You probably come here and you might even hear the same sermon sometimes taught in different ways because there's some themes and subjects that are more important to me. So I'll just give you a few examples. One of my favorite subjects to preach over is the person and the work of the Holy Spirit. So I teach over the Holy Spirit a lot. One of our core values, number two, is actually that we are a spirit-filled church. And so I love teaching over the Holy Spirit. Early on in our church, we did a sermon series called Holy Spirit, a second look at the third member of the Trinity. Super clever title, I came up with that. And it's all about the power and the person of the Holy Spirit in your life. And then last winter, we did a sermon series called Spiritual Gifts. You can go and you can find it on YouTube and you can discover your spiritual gift so that way you can make a difference. I love teaching on the Holy Spirit. Another theme that I teach over a lot is the local church. And so every August, what do we do? A vision series about the local church because I love the local church. We just finished a series called we are redemption, how we experience life change through Jesus together as a church. And if you come to First Wednesday prayer night, we're in the middle of a sermon series called Seven Habits of a Healthy Church based out of Acts 2.42, because I love teaching over the local church. How many of you love your church? You love your church, right? And I love you. And I love teaching over the local church. Another theme that I preach over a lot is finding joy in suffering. You come to Redemption, I preach a lot about choosing joy in the midst of difficulty and suffering. So over the summer during COVID, we did 10 whole weeks over marriage because sometimes you got to choose joy and suffering. Amen. <laughs> Listen, there's three different rings in every marriage. There's the engagement ring, there's the wedding ring, and then there's the suffering, amen? And so, no, I'm just joking. We, we, we did the book of Philippians called Finding Joy, even when you don't feel like it. We've done the book of James and we've done the book of Habakkuk. All of those are themes about finding joy in the midst of your suffering. Those are things that are important to me. Jesus, in the same way, has certain topics and teachings that are more important to him. And one of the things that Jesus teaches over more than anything else is the importance of prayer. 
Because Jesus understands that prayer unlocks the power of God in your life. See, Jesus isn't gonna be with the disciples for much longer. It's Wednesday, he's going to the cross on Friday. And then afterwards, they're going to go and take the message of Jesus and spread it across the world. They're gonna go out and plant churches. They're gonna go out and bring revival. They're gonna go out and heal the sick and cast out demons. They're gonna go out and they're gonna do the very same things that Jesus did in his life and ministry. And he doesn't teach them how to do any of those things, but here's what he does teach them. He teaches them how to pray because when you learn how to pray, all of those things are possible because it's prayer that unlocks the power of God in your life. It all happens after we learn how to pray. Do you want to see God's power in your life? Then you need to learn how to pray. Do you want to see God show up in incredible ways? Then that means you need to learn how to pray. Are you in a situation right now where you're stuck and you don't know what to do? You need God to show up. That happens when you learn to pray. Are you sick and you need relief or healing from a physical ailment, maybe emotional healing, spiritual healing? Maybe you need a mental health healing and you find yourself in a place where you have no relief in your life and you're crying out to God, God, would you heal me? God can do that when you call out to him through prayer because prayer unlocks the power of God in your life? Do you need financial provision? God can do that when you learn to pray. Do you want a promotion at your job? God can do that when you learn to pray. Do you need a miracle when it comes to your finances? Do you need a miracle when it comes to your marriage or maybe your children, when it comes to your grandparents or to your own parents? Do you need to see God show up in your family? God can do that when you learn how to pray. Are you in a situation or a circumstance where it seems everything is against you and nothing is going for you and you need God to show up and break through? That only happens when you learn how to pray. Do you have a besetting sin, a struggle or temptation that you can't seem to avoid, that it has its hooks in you, its grip in you, and you can't shake it? That comes from the power of prayer to repent and break that pattern, to walk in freedom and to walk in deliverance. That only comes when you learn how to pray. Do you want to see God's power active and on display in your life? That only comes when you learn how to pray. Because prayer is the key to unlocking God's power in your life. How many of you want to see God's power in your life? That comes when we learn how to pray. And so Jesus today, he's going to teach us three keys to effective prayer. Three things for you to know when you go and you begin to pray. So you can have trust and you can have confidence that God answers prayer. The first key is this. If you're taking notes, I want you to write this down. One of the reasons that we pray is because prayer strengthens your faith. Here's what Jesus said to them. It says, and he answered them, have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Now, this is a pretty popular Bible verse. Okay. If you grew up in Southeast Texas or going to Sunday school, how many of you went to Awanas? Little Southern Baptist Awana people. Okay. You shamefully raised your hand. Thank you. How many of y'all went to Royal Rangers? That's me right there, AG, baby. We went to Royal Rangers. It's like Boy Scouts that got filled with the Holy Spirit. That's Royal Rangers, okay? So that's me. You grew up in Sunday school. How many of you have heard this verse before? You speak to the mountain, be thrown into the sea. It's a famous Christian Bible verse. You probably have it on a coffee cup, don't you? 
Yeah, you probably got a coffee cup. You probably posted it on your Instagram from your version Bible app, right? You, we've probably all seen and heard this verse because it's a very popular Christian Bible verse. Anybody who speaks to this mountain, be cast into the sea and it will be done for them. And oftentimes what happens is, is we, as Christians, we hear this verse and we think, okay, I just gotta have faith. I need to have faith. If I, if I just have faith, then I can speak to the mountain and the mountain will be thrown to the obstacles that are in front of me, the, 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 the things that are before me. If I just speak to them and pray to them, if I just have enough faith, then they'll move and then they don't move. And you think, oh no, there's something wrong with my faith. I need to have faith. I got to have faith and I don't have faith and nothing's happening. And so what's wrong with my faith? I need to get more faith. How do you get more faith? Well, you go to the gym and you work out your spiritual muscles and you get strong faith. So there's spiritual push-ups that you do to strengthen your faith. There's spiritual chin-ups that you could do to strengthen your faith. You go on a spiritual marathon to strengthen your faith and you think, I need to have more faith. I want to have strengthened faith. And then all of a sudden you're like, is that enough? Did I do it? How many of you get a little tripped up when you think about faith, right? Get a little tripped up. Okay. All those things are good things. I don't want to discredit any of those things, but I want to show you something. Jesus here doesn't say have faith in faith, because if all you're doing is putting your faith in faith, you're really just putting your faith in yourself. Because you think you muster it up, you strengthen it up, you think you earn it and you deserve it. And you're just putting your faith in faith. Jesus here doesn't tell us to put our faith in faith. No. Where does he tell us to put our faith? He says, have faith in God, because it's not you that moves the mountains. It's God who moves the mountains for you. That it's not just your faith that accomplishes it. It's your faith in him. He's the one who moves the mountains on your behalf because we pray to God and God is the one who shows up and God is the one who shows off and God is the one who moves the mountains for us. Have faith in God. Don't have faith in faith. No, have faith in God. You don't need a lot of faith to move a mountain. In fact, in another place, Jesus says, all you need is the faith the size of a mustard seed. You don't need a lot of faith to move a mountain. You just got to use the faith that you already have. You use the faith that you got, and then God shows up, and it's God who moves the mountains for you. But here's what I've discovered in church, is that as Christians, we don't really like to pray about the mountains that we face. What we like to do instead is we like to complain about the mountains, how many of you like complain? You, you, that's you. You're like, I, yeah, I just complain. God, do you see this mountain? Oh, this mountain's so big. Oh, this mountain is just in my way. I can't believe it. And you go to work and you complain about your mountain. You come home and you tell your wife all about how big your mountain is. And you're complaining about your mountain to your kids and to your grandkids. And you're complaining about your mountain to your friend or your phone. You get on Facebook and you're like, oh, this mountain is in my way. And you make these tweets and posts about how great and how big your mountain is. And instead of praying about your mountain, you complain about your mountain. If that's not you, here's probably what you do. You compare your mountain to others. You say, oh, look at your mountain. You think that's a big mountain, Chris? Oh, you should see my mountain. Mm-hmm. I got a really big mountain over here. I got two mountains, right? I, I, there's a whole range of them. There's even more back there. Oh, your mountain? Mm, yeah, my mountain's bigger than yours. Oh, my goodness. Look at your mountain, Ashley. Wow. Hey, let's go gossip about how big her mountain is. This is what people do in the church, right? They're like, Ashley's mountain is way so, so much bigger than mine. I got a little baby mountain. She's got a really big mountain, okay? And so we like to compare our mountains to others. We like to complain about our mountain. Or some of you, what you do is you compartmentalize your mountain. If you just ignore it, it doesn't exist. 
I just tuck my mountain away in a deep corner of my heart, and it's just, it's not there. Uh, you got a mountain in your life. What are you talking about? I don't have a mountain. You have a mountain. She has a mountain, but not me. What do you see? Don't look at the mountain behind the curtain, right? That's oftentimes what we do. We compartmentalize our mountain, and then all of a sudden we wake up at 2 o'clock in the morning. <gasps> Panic. What's wrong with me? Oh, it's the mountain that is sitting next to me. That's what we like to do. Some of you like to compare your mountains to others. Some of you like to complain about your mountain. Some of you compartmentalize your mountain, but Jesus wants us to pray about it to bring it to God and to stop telling God how big our mountain is and allow, allow God to tell us how big he is compared to the mountains that we face. I want you just to understand how big God is. See, some of you right now, you're not tracking with me. You're like, okay, mountain moving faith, praying to God to move the mountains. Byron, I've heard all of that before, but you don't know what I'm up against. You don't know what's going on in my life. You don't know the mountains that I face. I don't need to know the mountains that you face or how great and how big they are because I know how great and big our God is. And I know that he can move that mountain for you, whatever it is, because he is bigger. So let me just go on a little rant right now and tell you how big our God is. Genesis 1.1. Okay, in the beginning, God. Let's just stop right there. First verse of the Bible. In the beginning, God. So before there was a beginning, guess what? There was God. God is bigger than the beginning. God is bigger than time and space. God is bigger than matter and energy. God is bigger than the beginning. The book of Revelation, the end says, he is the alpha and the omega, the first and the last. He is bigger than the beginning. And whatever you're facing, I can guarantee you, he is bigger than the ending. That's how big our God is. In the beginning, God, he's bigger than the beginning. In the beginning, God, what did he do? He created everything in this world that you touch and taste and feel and smell and your senses and everything that you see, God is bigger than those things. He created all of those things. Colossians tells us that he is the expressed image of the invisible God, that Jesus, by him, to him, for him, through him, all things were created and in him we move and have our being. That's how big our God is, that he created everything that we see in this world. He is bigger than all of those things. Our God is bigger than the heavens. Have you ever seen a sun? God is bigger than that. Have you ever seen a moon? God is bigger than that. Have you ever seen a galaxy? God is bigger than that. Have you ever seen a supernova? God is bigger than that. In fact, the book of Psalms says the earth is his footstool. That's how big our God is. He props his feet up on the planet. That's how big our God is. Our God is big. He is bigger than the heavens. He is bigger than the earth. He is bigger than the trees and the animals. He is bigger than the highest of the mountains and the lowest of the valleys. He is bigger than Mount Everest and he is bigger than the Marianas Trench. He is bigger than all of those things. And our God is bigger than even the smallest molecule that there is. The ones that even scientists haven't even discovered yet. The atoms and the quarks and all of these different things. Our God is bigger than all of those things. That's how big our God is. Our God is bigger than the heavens. He is bigger than the earth. And here's how big our God is. Our God is so big that he humbled himself and became small. So much so that he was born in a manger. An infant, tender and mild. To a poor teenage girl. He was probably scared. And he was born in a manger. In poverty. In obscurity. And Luke 2.52 says, he grew in wisdom and favor and stature with God and others. And as Jesus walked the planet, very God of very God, he loved perfectly, he helped others, he served 
perfectly. He performed miracles. He cast out demons. He spoke truth. He preached sermons. He walked on water. He resurrected the dead. That's how big our God is. And then he goes into Jerusalem where he is going to be arrested, tried, crucified. He's going to die the most painful death ever known in human history, the death on a Roman cross. And they're going to take his lifeless body off that cross and they're going to bury it in a borrowed grave. And then three days later, Jesus beats death. That's how big our God is. Our God is bigger than death. And then he removes the shame and the guilt and the sin in your life and he gives you freedom. That's how big our God is. Our God is bigger than guilt. Our God is bigger than shame. Our God is bigger than condemnation. Our God is bigger and better than the worst day of your life. That's how big our God is. And then he resurrects and he ascends to the right hand of the Father. And you wonder, where is our great God at right now? Where is our Jesus at right now? What is he doing? Well, if you were to turn to 1 Timothy, what it tells us is this, is that there is one mediator between God and man, and our Lord Jesus is praying for you. That's how big our God is. I want you to write this down, and I want you to believe it. Prayer works because God works through prayer. God's praying for you right now. The Lord Jesus Christ in heaven is praying for you right now. Do you know why I believe prayer works? Because Jesus is praying right now. He is our great high priest and the mediator on our behalf. He is hearing, answering our prayers, and he is praying for you. Listen, prayer works because God works through prayer. I love the quote that comes from Charles Spurgeon when he actually says that prayer is the thin vein that moves the hand of God. That's what prayer is. Prayer works because God works through prayer. I want you to understand just how big our God is. Whatever you're facing in your life, our God is bigger. Whatever you're going through in your life, our God is bigger. Whatever situation you find yourself in, I want you to have the faith to believe that our God is bigger than those things. And you don't have faith in faith, and you don't have faith in yourself, and you definitely don't have faith in the mountain. No, you have the faith in God who is bigger than the mountain, and you pray to him, and you cry out to him, and you know this at the root of your being, that prayer works because God works through prayer. And so you need to speak to that mountain and say, be removed because I have faith in the Lord and it's God who moves the mountains for me. Prayer works because God works through prayer. Now, some of you, you're not tracking with me. You're like, Pastor Byron, that's really good, but I'm not there yet. Okay, let me give you three reasons why I believe that God loves it when we pray. I'm gonna give you three reasons that I believe that God loves it when we pray. Do you know, this is an invitation that Jesus is inviting you into his presence to come and to pray. And I want to give you three reasons why God loves it when you pray. The first reason is this, because God loves to show off his greatness. Did you know that? That God loves to show off his greatness in your life. I remember one time when me and Ashley were living in Houston, I was unemployed. I had actually lost my job and I was in a transition period and I was praying and believing that God was going to give me a new job. And so I'm like, God, where is this job at? You know, I just, I haven't gotten it. I've applied didn't get a job. I've done interviews. I didn't get a call back. Okay, God, it's been several weeks now, kind of running low on money. Need to get me a new job. And so after weeks and weeks and weeks of not getting a call back, I said, okay, God, here's what we're going to do. You're going to give me a job and I'm not going to apply for it. I'm not going to go out and seek it and find it. I don't even want to do an interview. God, you're just going to give me this job. And so I'm sitting at church the very next day and a girl walks up to me and she says, hey, do you need a job? And I was like, Yes. 
She said, that's great. I said, well, where do I apply? She said, you're hired. Come in Monday. You don't even have to fill out an application. You're hired. And I'm like, that's amazing. God answered my prayer. And so I go in and I start on Monday. And as the week goes on, I realize this isn't the job for me. In fact, the, the owner of it was asking me to do unethical things, to lie and to steal from clients. And I was like, I'm not into this. And so after several different conversations and pushback, I go into work on Friday and they fire me. So I got hired on a Monday and I got fired on a Friday. And I remember riding my bicycle back home and I just remember thinking, okay, God, why would you answer this prayer so specifically and give me a job, and then I didn't even work five days before I get fired. God, why would you do this? And I heard the voice of the Spirit as clear as day, just so you know that I can. Okay, God. Good answer. And then two weeks later, I was offered a job in my very first pastorate, just so I can trust him. God loves to show off his greatness in your life. I have held on to that for over 10 years. Anytime money's tight, anytime I'm in a situation, anytime I need to see an answer of prayer, anytime me and my family are in a position where we have to depend and trust on God, here's what I just think over and over again. I remind myself, God told me, just so you know that I can. God loves to show off his greatness. The second reason is this. God loves to show off his goodness. Later, we're gonna see that God is a father. That's how I want you to think about God. God is a father, and every dad wants to be good to his kids. I'm a dad. I got two daughters. My daughter, Esther's son, she is three years old. She could be four in like two weeks. And uh, the other morning, as I was getting ready to go to work, she was going to day school. And as I was walking out the door, kid you not, my daughter, Esther, she runs up to me. She says, Daddy, can I have an energy drink? <laughs> now, remember, my daughter's three. Now, do you think me being the great dad that I am, is going to give my three-year-old daughter an energy drink. Actually, I did. <laughs> I gave my three-year-old daughter an energy drink. Now, she always sees me drinking energy drinks, but the truth is I didn't actually give her an energy drink. I gave her one of these. She thinks <clears throat> good to grow apple juice <laughs> is an energy drink. But every parent of toddlers knows that these things, it's just apple juice, cost more than energy drinks. It's like $4. Okay, it's a $4 apple juice. They're running a racket on parents, I guess. And so, and so I went to CVS and I got me an energy drink and I got her an energy drink. And we went and we sat out on the porch swing before I went to work and we drank our energy drinks together. Why would I do that? Because I want my daughter to know that I love her. And I'm the closest representation to God that my three-year-old little girl knows. And I want for my daughter to grow up believing that God is good. God loves it when you come and pray to him because God loves to show off his goodness in your life. And then number three, God loves to show others his glory. God loves it when you're in a situation where you don't know what to do. Now, I know you don't love it, but God loves it when you're in a situation where you have to depend on him. God loves it when you're in a season of life where you have to seek and knock and find him. God loves it whenever you're in circumstances where you're so desperate for him, where nothing's gonna work and nothing's gonna happen. And if God doesn't show up, then everything's gonna fail. And you cry out to him and you call out to him. God loves it when you're in a situation where he's the only one who can get the credit. God loves to show off his glory to others through your life. 
God loves it when we pray. Listen, prayer works because God works through prayer. So stop complaining about the mountain. Start praying about it. Start, stop com- comparing your mountains to others. Start praying about your mountain. And please do not compartmentalize your mountain. Be honest about the mountain that is in your life and go to God in prayer and watch God begin to work in your life. Prayer works because God works through prayer, which leads us to the second point. Some of you are like, Byron, you almost got me with that. That prayer work stuff was really good, but I know somebody who prayed and it didn't work. I know somebody who prayed and they believe God for big things and well, it just didn't work. And you know, my aunt Ethel, she prayed for healing and she died. And so obviously prayer doesn't work. And I know somebody who they prayed for a job and they're employed and then COVID happened and the economy crashed and God, I just, I just don't believe that prayer works. I know Pastor Byron, you, you did that prayer works thing, right? Didn't work. Okay. How many of you, that's where you're at. Please don't raise your hand unless it's for salvation <laughs> at the end of the message. This point's for you. Prayer overcomes your fears. Not only does prayer strengthen your faith, but prayer also overcomes your fears. Actually, watch this. Here's how it goes. It says this. It says, therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. The opposite of faith, most of us think is doubt. That's what a lot of us think. In fact, it says it right above, right here, where he says this, and Jesus answered them, have faith in God, there's faith. Truly I say to you, whoever says this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Then 24, therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, Believe that you will receive it and it will be yours. Most of us think that the opposite of faith is doubt, but I actually don't think that's where Jesus is going here. And that's not what I see as the biggest problem in church and in my life. Because there's a story earlier in Mark chapter nine, where there is a demonized boy who his father brings him to Jesus. We looked at it a little bit earlier. And he says to Jesus, he says, can you heal my son? And Jesus says, can I? Don't you know who you're talking to? Yes, of course I can. I am Jesus. The question is not, can I? The question is, what do you want me to do? And and the dad says, please heal my son. And here's what Jesus says. Anything is possible for those who believe. And then the dad cries out in an act of desperation. He says, I believe, but help my unbelief. What do we see right there? we see there's a combination of faith and doubt that is coexisting at the same time. But here's what that man had that so many of us don't have. He had the willingness and the desperation to ask. Sometimes the reason we don't see prayers answered is because we don't have the ask. Listen, you can't get mad at God for not answering your prayers if you're not the one who's asking for them. See, one of the things that I've discovered is that a lot of times the reason that we're not seeing God move in our life is simply because we don't ask him. See, this man, he has the desperation to cry out to Jesus. He says, I believe, but help my unbelief. He wasn't afraid. He was bold when it came to his prayers and he got God to respond to that prayer. See, I think the biggest problem for many of us in our prayer lives is not doubt, but actually it's fear. We don't wanna look foolish. We don't want to believe God for big things and then God not come through. And then all of a sudden, we're the ones who have the bad reputation. 
We don't want to say or vocalize the things that we're believing in our heart because we don't want other people to make fun of us or to discredit us or to minimize us or say, that's impossible. That's not going to happen. You don't need to believe in that. You need to, you need to hold on to something else. You need to go find something else. We talk ourselves out of the miracles. And oftentimes what I've discovered in my life is this. I say no to God before I ever give God a chance to say yes to me. When it comes to my prayer life, God won't do that. Oh, somebody comes forward for prayer and they need healing immediately. Sometimes in the first thought of my mind is God probably not going to heal them. And what happens is this. I am afraid to pray for healing for another person because what if God doesn't do it? I'm afraid to pray for a new building because what happens if we don't get it? And then I stand up on church and the stage and I say, hey guys, we're getting a new building. We're gonna move. I don't know where, I don't know when, but we're gonna start a building campaign and I'm gonna ask you for $1.8 million over the next two years and God's gonna give us a new building and I'm gonna say that, not yet. So go ahead, prepare your hearts and your pocketbooks. That's coming soon. (laughs) But even the act of me just saying that right now, you know what I felt in my heart? I felt fear. But here Jesus says, He says this, he says, whatever you ask in prayer, here's the greatest tragedy in the church. The greatest tragedy is not that prayers go unanswered, but that for so many of us, our prayers go unasked. That out of fear, we don't ask God. Out of fear, we don't go to God. Out of the fear of looking foolish or the fear of being being seen and ridiculed, we don't ask God for the things that we truly need in our lives. And because of that, we end up with unanswered prayer. The greatest tragedy, if you're writing this down, the greatest tragedy in life is not that prayers go unanswered, but that for so many of us, oftentimes our prayers go unasked. James, Jesus' brother, in James 4, he says, you have not because you ask not. You can't get mad at God for not giving you what you haven't asked him for. Ask God. I've told you over and over again that the biggest regret that I ever have when it comes to planting Redemption Church is that I did not pray bold prayers. I prayed safe prayers. How many of you know what safe prayers are? Y'all pray those safe prayers, right? You pray those really safe prayers, like the prayers that you know God's always gonna answer, like nourish my body, Jesus. Bless this food and nourish my body. Like you're eating food, it's obviously gonna nourish your body, okay? Unless you're praying over nachos and then you're like, take away some of these calories, Lord. (laughs) You know that's gonna happen, right? We pray safe prayers. Like when you wake up in the morning and you pray over your kids, you say, you pray, you know, Aaron's blessing. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May his cause his face to shine upon you and his countenance be towards you. That's actually a good prayer. Please pray that over your kids. It's a great prayer. Or maybe when you tuck your kids in at night, how many of you prayed, now I lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord my soul to keep, right? That's a creepy prayer. Like you're teaching your kids that they could die. Like that's kind of weird, okay? All right, but it's still a good prayer. Go ahead and pray that for your, for your kids. My favorite prayer personally, and it's one I pray every single day. And I pray it over lunch. I say, Father, Son, Holy Ghost, who eats the fastest, eats the most. God's been answering that prayer a lot lately. (laughs) But we pray safe prayers. Have you noticed that when you pray, it's typically the same routine things that goes through your mouth and mind every single time you pray. There's nothing wrong with that. Go ahead, pray, pray your safe prayers. But after you finish praying your safe prayers, let's pray some prayers that scare us. Let's pray some bold prayers. Let's pray some prayers that are so big, only God can answer them. There's something really interesting about this text that I never knew. He's talking about moving the mountains, okay? And so 
prayer that moves the mountains. Normally, what I've always believed was this, was that Jesus was speaking metaphorically. That it was just an illustration. Jesus was like, oh, and if you pray, you can move a mountain. And people were like, no, that makes sense. Big obstacle in my way, yeah. And I always thought it was metaphorical. But as a new Christian, I wanted to believe the Bible was God's word and it was true and that it was literal, but I just couldn't wrap my mind around it. I'm like, Jesus, you really think we're going to move a mountain? I mean, someone's going to move a mountain. I've never seen a mountain move. And then could you think about the ecological disaster that would happen if like one day someone was like, mountain, move, and the mountain's like, okay, and then jumps in the sea? That would be really weird. Could you imagine like all the plants and animals and all the, 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 the liberals who would freak out for climate change? Could you imagine that? I mean, it would be crazy crazy if that were to happen. I shouldn't have said that. <laughs> You're like, does he normally say these things? Yes, and more. <laughs> and so I always thought, well, that would be very irresponsible for Jesus to actually move a mountain, right? Um, but then as I was reading in my, my studies this week, I realized that Jesus was actually talking literally that the disciples, when they heard this, they would have thought literally Jesus is telling them to move a mountain. And here's the reason why. I'll go and show you on the screen. Here's a picture of where most people believe that Jesus was teaching this, this story. And so he's on the Mount of Olives and he's overlooking what is the temple, right? You see it right now? This is a modern picture. That's the Dome of the Rock, the, 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 the uh, Dome of the Rock. Jesus would have been here and the temple was actually built on a mountain, He's on the Mount of Olives, and the temple is called the Temple Mounts. And the way that Herod built that temple over a 46-year period was this. He excavated the side of Mount Moriah. So for 46 years, they were rebuilding the temple by excavating, by moving the mountain to build this. And what Jesus is getting at is this. What Jesus is saying, and the disciples who understood, is that humanly speaking, you can move a mountain. It's just going to take you a really long time. You can spend years and tears and a lot of money and you could excavate a mountain and you could move a mountain and it's gonna frustrate you and it's gonna exhaust you and maybe some people might lose their lives and you're gonna have to rip some people off along the way and you can fight hard enough and you can push hard enough and you can work long enough and exhaust yourself and you can tire yourself and eventually, maybe after 46 years, you can move a mountain or you can ask God to move it for you. Some of you, you find yourself in that situation where you're trying to move the mountain instead of trusting that God will move the mountain for you through prayer. So maybe you're in a situation in your life where you're, 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 you're wanting to get a new job and you've applied for all of these different places and no opportunities are opening up and you're trying to put yourself in positions you know you ain't got no business being in, but you're trying to force the job instead of praying and trusting that God will give it to you. Or maybe it's a promotion at work where you show up first and you leave last and you're kissing up and you're spending time and you're trying to work the network to be able to get into a better job, a better promotion, and you're neglecting your family and you're tiring yourself out and you're trying so hard and you're wondering, how come I'm not getting the job? How come you're not praying for the job? Maybe God has it for you and you just got to pray and trust him. Sure, you can move the mountain or you can trust God to move the mountain for you. Maybe it's with your own marriage. You're here today and your marriage is falling apart and you've tried everything. You've tried nagging and that didn't work. 
You've tried begging, and that didn't work. You've tried counseling, and that didn't work. Have you tried praying for your spouse and getting on your knees in the morning and going before the Lord on their behalf? Have you tried praying for them because you can't change their heart? Only Jesus can do that, and that happens when we learn how to pray. Maybe you're here and you have a physical illness and you're sick and the doctors don't know what it is. Maybe it's cancer. Maybe it's some other illness or diabetes or maybe it's some sort of chronic sickness. I don't know what's going on. And you're going from doctor to doctor and doctor and you're not getting any relief from the pain. Listen, I'm not against going and seeing doctors, but I want you to go see the great physician too. Go pray to the Lord to remove that mountain in your life. Maybe it's trying to sell a house. You've been trying to sell your house for years and it's been on the market and there is no sellers and you've tried real estate agent after real estate agent after real estate agent and it's still not selling, but you need to get on your knees and go before the Lord and you need to ask God to sell your house for you. I'm just trying to encourage you to pray prayers that scare you. Pray prayers that are so big that only God can answer them then you're not gonna answer the prayer by yourself and you're not gonna say no for God. You're gonna pray prayers that overcome your fears. My biggest regret in planting redemption is I did not pray big prayers. My prayers when we started this church were like this. My prayer was, okay, Jesus, just let somebody show up today. That was my prayer. I remember early in the church, because this is redemption and everybody's always 10 minutes late for church, we, we started playing and there would be like 20 people in the whole congregation and I would have to stand at the very front and raise my hands like this and just close my eyes and not look back because it was just too depressing. Nobody was there. I just remember praying and I'll say, God, I'm not opening my eyes until the third song. <laughs> and eventually people showed up, but that was my prayer. My prayer was, God, please let somebody give more than a cigarette butt and a marble. That's a true story. Early in our church, you know, one Sunday, the only offering we took up was a cigarette and a marble. I was like, God, please let somebody show up with a job. <laughs> and my prayer was that we would have a little church, we'd get a nice little building that we could rent month to month. And I was hoping that I made a paycheck to where I didn't have to teach high school and pastor at the same time, and I could have a kid, and we could just get by. That was my prayers for our church. And you know what happened? It only took God three years to answer those prayers. And you think, wow, Byron, way to go. God answered your prayers. And that's great. I love you. But what would happen if I prayed bigger prayers? What would have happened if I prayed prayers that I really wanted? that I didn't want just a building to rent month to month to where we could fit 50 to 60 people in? What if I prayed what I really desired? What if I prayed for us to purchase a building in downtown Beaumont where we would see a gospel-centered movement in the heart of the city where every man, woman, and child would experience life change through Jesus? What if I prayed for the building that I envision, the building that would have not only a youth center or a community center, not only children's ministry, but special needs children ministry because so many times there are parents with special needs children who are not able to come to church because the church cannot take care of their child. What if that's the prayer I prayed? 
What if I prayed for not just two services, but the worship team will love this, six services packed out every single Sunday? What if those are the prayers that we prayed for? And not just planting one church, but 10 churches all across Interstate 10 from every city. There would be a redemption church sign as you drive through that every single, every single stoplight as you pull up to it will have somebody with an R bumper sticker on the back of their car that you can't get away because that's just what God's doing in the life of our church. What if I prayed such prayers that scared me, prayers to where people would actually get to baptize their friends, people who would be so sold out to the Great Commission and so on fire for God and filled with the Holy Spirit that everywhere they go, they are just sharing the good news from work and home. What if that's the church where every single person every single year reaches one and baptizes them? What happens if I prayed that prayer? What if I believed God for prayers that every single Sunday somebody would be physically healed in our church, that miracles would take place here every single week. What would happen if I prayed that when people walk through the door, addictions would be broken just by stepping into the house of God, that depression would be lifted just by stepping into the house of God? What kind of church would that be if I prayed what God wanted me to pray instead of being scared? Because what if he doesn't do it? Then I look like a fool. You know what? My friend Travis told me this and it was just so powerful to me. He said, Byron, that's a lot of pride on you. He said, you think it's about you. You still think praying's about you. See, one of the reasons we're afraid to ask God is because we think it's about us. But really, it's about him. It's God's reputation that's on the line. It's God's job to answer prayers. It's just your job to pray. Pray. Let God worry about the answer. You pray. Pray and let God worry. Give it to him. Stop being afraid to ask God for what you really desire. Go to him in boldness and pray prayers that scare you because when you spend time in God's presence, it overcomes the fear in your heart. Ask and it will be given to you. You have not because you ask not. Stop saying no for God. Get alone with him and maybe he'll do it. You say, but maybe he won't. Okay, but maybe he will. You say, maybe he won't do it. Okay, but maybe he will do it. Stop saying no for God and get alone with him and pray because it's prayer that overcomes the fear and releases the power of God in your life. Pray, which leads us to the third point. Prayer allows you to forgive. Here's how Jesus closed it. He talked about fear, he's talked about faith, and now he's gonna talk to us about Forgiveness, here's, here's what he says. And whenever you stand praying, forgive. And if you have anything against anyone, so that your father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. But if you do not forgive, neither will your father who is in heaven forgive you of your trespasses. Now, some of you are like, that is a big left turn, right? How did we get there? I mean, we're talking about faith that moves the mountains, praying in faith, overcoming our fears. That's what we're talking about, right? Praying bold prayers, prayers that scare you. Mountain, be moved. We're praying about faith. We're praying about fear. And then all of a sudden, Jesus is like, oh yeah, and if you don't forgive, God will not forgive you. You're like, whoa, Jesus, that's too personal, too fast, okay? It's like, Jesus, what does this have to do with prayer? I mean, you took a left turn in Albuquerque. You lost me, Jesus. We were talking about prayer, and now you're telling me I need to forgive somebody else? Yes, because forgiveness is really about power. Listen, here, here's, what, here's what Jesus does. Hey, Jesus wants to show you his power. 
He wants to reveal his power, and he wants to do a miracle in your life. Do you know what the greatest miracle that Jesus ever performed was? It wasn't casting out demons. It wasn't healing the sick. The greatest miracle wasn't cleansing the leper, giving sight to the blind. It wasn't opening deaf ears. It wasn't walking on water or feeding the multitudes. And it wasn't raising the little girl from the dead. Do you know what the greatest miracle that Jesus ever performed was? Forgiveness. And here's the reason why. It's because every other miracle Jesus performed in his life. But forgiveness is the only miracle Jesus performed by his death. That's why it's so powerful. It took Jesus going to the cross to forgive us. It was so great. It was so significant. It could only be accomplished by the shedding of his blood in your place for your sins. Forgiveness is the greatest miracle that there is. And you know what prayer God answers 100% every single time? Father, forgive me. No questions asked. He says, yes, I'll forgive you right now. But I did this. Don't worry. I forgive you. As far as the east is to the west, that's how great this forgiveness is, that he washes you clean. He doesn't hold it against you anymore. He says, behold, you are a new creation in Christ Jesus. But what about this? Nope, I don't see it anymore. It has been forgiven. And then you bring it back up. He says, nope, I have forgiven you. That is not your identity. That is not who you are anymore. I don't even remember it. I don't even hold it against you. You have been forgiven. I have forgiven you. I have forgiven you. You are washed by the blood of Jesus. You have been forgiven. It's the greatest miracle that Jesus will ever perform is to forgive us of our sins. And then when we are unwilling to forgive others, we're robbing God's power from working in our life. Listen, God cannot bless, write this down. God cannot bless your bitterness. If you're resentful and bitter towards another person, you're blocking God from working in your life. Unforgiveness hurts hardships that you keep harboring in your heart will prevent God from working in your life. God cannot bless bitterness. And here's the reason why, because it's against his nature. It's against his character. It's not who he is. God's not going to give you something that is bad for you. God only wants good for you. And if God blesses your bitterness, he is going to prolong the pain that you're experiencing in your life. God cannot and will not bless bitterness in your heart. And here's why Jesus is so amazing. Jesus is smart. Jesus is a teacher. How many of you know Jesus is smart? I know we oftentimes think about Jesus is Lord and Jesus is God and Jesus is powerful, but I don't know if we ever really connect that Jesus is brilliant. And here's what Jesus does. In verse 22, Jesus says this. He says, anyone who says this mountain be taken up or cast off and to be thrown into the sea. And then here he says, to forgive. The Greek word for forgive is alepho, and you know what it means? To cast off, to take up, and to throw away. Jesus is connecting the mountain in your way to the unforgiveness in your heart, because that's exactly what unforgiveness is. It is a mountain between you and God. You're wondering why you're so far from God. Maybe it's because you have unforgiveness in your life. You're wondering why it seems like God's not hearing your prayers. Maybe it's because there is unforgiveness in your heart. You come here and you're wondering, okay, Bayard, I want to see the power of God, but I'm not seeing the power of God in my life. Why? Maybe it's because there is bitterness and resentment and unforgiveness towards someone else or maybe even yourself. And it has separated you from the relationship that God wants to have with you. Because unforgiveness is about power. 
And here's what happens. When you have unforgiveness towards another person, you're taking the power from God and you're handing it to them. I know that because when they walk into a room, you're no longer yourself. I know that because when you come forward for prayer, you don't let it go. And it keeps repeating itself over and over again. I know that because it's the conversations in your small group. I know that because it's the conversations in counseling and one-on-one. That it just keeps showing up over and over. You have given them power over your life. And now it affects the decisions you make. It affects the relationships you have. It affects the way you raise your kids. It affects the way that you spend your money. It affects where you work. It affects every aspect of your life. Because there is bitterness that is rooted so deep down in you. It has become you. And you give that person power. You may not have ever seen them in 10 years and they still have power over your life. And this is why Jesus says, you gotta cast that thing away from you. I wanna work in your life, but I can't do it when you're giving my power to somebody else. You wanna see the miracle of forgiveness? You say, but pastor, it's so hard. I know it's so hard. You say, but you don't know what I've been through. I know, I don't know what you've been through. I know what God is. I know what God can do. And God knows what you've been through. And Jesus says, you gotta forgive you got to let it go. you got to get it away from you. And when you let it go, that's the moment you begin to let God in. When you let it go, you let God in. I wasn't going to say this, and I didn't say it for a sermon, but I do feel like I want to share a story with you, just so you know that this is part of my life. So me and Ashley, we got married at 22. And we had about a six to seven year journey of infertility. I say it like it's an exciting thing. Yay, we're in our infertility journey. (laughs) But it was a lot of pain and heartache in our lives. We've had miscarriages, but no baby. And we prayed and we prayed, and God never answered that prayer. And we just wondered, God, why aren't you answering this prayer? We even had people come up and give a prophetic word over us. And after three prophetic words, I was about to lay hands on somebody else, if you know what I mean. (laughs) Because it wasn't answering. For six or seven years, we're praying that God would give us a child. And that prayer eventually led to bitterness in my heart. I even got to the point to where I just didn't believe God answered prayer anymore. That's probably why I prayed such shallow, simple prayers for our church. Because we didn't have Esther whenever we planted this church. We were still going through it. And we went to a freedom class. And... That's why freedom ministry is such an important part of our church today. It's because me and Ashley went to a freedom class before we opened our church. And as we met with the counselors and we got together one-on-one, they were praying over Ashley's and our infertility, and they hit the root of bitterness. And she had become so bitter towards God and others. And she was wondering why God wouldn't bless her. It's because God can't bless your bitterness. And I'm telling you, the God's honest truth, the moment in that meeting she began to release the bitterness and to pray and to forgive and to let God in, it wasn't but a month later she was pregnant with Esther. Unforgiveness blocks the power of God from working in your life. Prayer unlocks the power of God in your life. But God can't and God won't bless bitterness in your heart because it's not good for you. That's why he says you gotta get rid of it. You gotta let it go. 
The same way you'd speak to the mountain, be removed, you gotta speak to that mountain of pain in your life and say, I give it to God and God remove this for me from my life. And when you learn how to forgive, you will share in the greatest miracle that Jesus ever performed, forgiveness. See, Jesus doesn't teach his disciples how to perform all of these miracles because he doesn't have to because he teaches them how to do something better. He teaches them the importance of prayer. Some of you, you're here today and you have an obstacle in your way. You need God to remove it. I don't know what your obstacle is. Maybe it's your health, maybe it's relationship, maybe it's finances, maybe it's addiction, maybe it's whatever you're going through. I don't know what it is, but God does. And I want you to have the faith that God is big enough to move it for you. And then others of you, you're here and you're, you're afraid. You believe God has put something in your heart, a dream, a vision, a business, a family, a plan. I don't know what it is, but God has put something in your heart and you're so afraid to vocalize and verbalize that because what if it doesn't happen? Paradigm shift right here. You ready? What if it does? What if it does? You have not because you ask not. Overcome that fear by spending time with God in prayer. And then lastly, there's unforgiveness. And you're wondering why there's a distance. It's because God wants to remove the mountain of pain in your heart so that you can experience genuine freedom that he wants to give to you. It's all about power. God's power on display in your life. God wants to work in your life. And that comes when we learn how to pray. So here's how we're gonna close. The band's gonna come up and we're gonna move into a song. I feel the spirit working right now as we're praying, as we're teaching over prayer. I wanna give you the opportunity for prayer. So the band's gonna come forward and they're gonna play a song. The rest of us, if we'll stand, we're gonna take Holy Communion. Holy Communion's an invitation of prayer. It's an invitation to remind us as we receive the broken body and the shed blood of Jesus that he is good, that he is great, and that he wants glory in our lives. And so we're gonna take prayer together. But the other thing I wanna do is this. I wanna invite our prayer team up front now. I wanna invite our prayer team up front now. And I wanna give you the opportunity to come forward and receive prayer. Don't walk out this door with a mountain in your life. Come forward and receive from God prayer. If you have fear, come forward and let God pray over you. We're gonna open up the altars right now. Nobody's looking around. Just come forward after taking communion and we're gonna worship and we're gonna sing and we're gonna pray. And everyone in here wants the best for you in your life. And they're gonna cheer you on as you come down front because nobody's judging you. Nobody's holding anything against you. Nobody's gonna think you're weak. In fact, if you come forward for prayer, you ain't weak, you strong because you're overcoming fear in your life in that moment. You are increasing and strengthening your faith in that moment. And you are saying to the devil, I do not want this unforgiveness anymore. I wanna get rid of it so I can get filled with God and I can see his power in my life. You come forward and you receive the prayer from the Lord. The tables are open. Take communion with someone near you. The band's gonna play. We're gonna pray. It's gonna be great. Let's worship the Lord.